Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're continuing and completing our coverage, at least in terms of the story, of Wolfe's first novel, Operationaries, which was published in 1970. That's right. It's chapters 9 and 10 today, which will bring us to the conclusion of the novel. And last time, we left off with John Castle, Anna Trees, and the Hunters attempting to rescue President Huggins from the Rectification Center in Cape May. And um, with that in mind, Brandon, I think we can just jump right into it. I agree. Chapter 9 is titled Over Before Sunrise, and the opening of the chapter finds our main cast of characters together again. They have successfully rescued President Huggins from the Russian Rectification Center, and they're in one of the Martian bases, which is – this base seems to be pretty big. It's like a cave complex, and there's trees and stuff. I don't know. It's winter, we're told. But Emil Lothrop is explaining the current situation after the rescue to Huggins and bringing Huggins up to speed. We learned from Emil Lothrop that Castle's group was actually just a diversionary group. And Emil wanted John to know that Anna was still alive, and that's part of the reason why he planned the raid the way he did with Castle's group being diversionary. Um, And it's also why Anna appeared in that Martian multiplication of Spectre's sort of technology. And we were speculating last time that what Wolf was doing here was setting her up to have been already rectified and to have become a traitor to the cause. But that was clearly not what Wolf had in mind. And Wolf doesn't even give us the battle that he provides the cliffhanger for. We just have this time jump. So we never actually see any more of what happens at Cape May. We just get this sort of in converse, this conversational summary of, uh, of what actually had happened. I mean, it's a lot of exposition, and it's kind of swiped away very quickly because Huggins says that he understands what happened. It's obvious. He's in the Martian cave with people, one of which was his old security guard, um, his old bodyguard, and he's just saying, like, well, that's not the issue. The, The issue at stake here is that a broadcast went out, probably from the Russians, that used an imposter Huggins to give like a generic message of hope and goodwill immediately after the broadcast. Uh, the, the Martians aren't too concerned about it because they think they were able to block a lot of the transmission. And plus, it was on early enough in the day where most people would not be able to watch it because they wouldn't have been at a civic center, which is where most of the people go at night. So there was a minimal impact, but this group of heroes still feels that they need to respond to it. So they begin planning a counter-broadcast with the real President Huggins. As they're kind of talking about this, the Chinese general who was responsible for leading the Chinese forces in the U.S. arrives. His name is General Li. And General Li, Emil Lothrop, President Huggins, and John Castle all greet one another in odd formal ways. And General Lee makes it clear that he's ready to accept President Huggins as the true president of the United States. Uh, But General Lee is particularly pleased to meet John Castle, who he refers to as the hero who contrived an exit for the illustrious personage from the running dogs of revisionism, and is delighted to learn that John will be granted an exalted responsibility in the restored government. 
and this is how John Castle learns that he is to be the new Secretary of Defense. And the general also lets us know, because we've been so concerned about it, that Nani has been rescued. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot going on in this scene. I just want to call attention to some things here going on here with General Lee. First off, and I want to point out, and I'm not really quite sure what to do with this, Brandon, that we have General Grant, who has been leading the attack against the Martian headquarters. When we met General Grant in previous chapters, I thought that name is surely significant, but didn't mention it. But here we have Lee. And this clearly is significant in some way. I find it very interesting that the Confederate General Lee is on the side of our heroes here. Right. It is part of Wolf's trick, bag of tricks, I suppose, to give significant names to characters in this way. And I think you're absolutely right to point out that pitting Lee against Grant in this way and the side that Lee is on is significant in the sense that we're not meant to trust this Chinese general. And it may go no further than just being an amusement to both to use these names, but I, I certainly find it interesting. There's a, another thing that, that General Lee does that I think is going to be important for our discussion, and that is use a lot of I don't know, jargony terms about various political ideologies. You've already brought up that he uses the term revisionism or, or revisionist. He also says revolutionary legitimist government. Um, He refers to the British Empire as imperialist colonialists, and then also calls the Soviet Union, in addition to being revisionists, they are neo-reactionaries. And I think it is very significant here that his vocabulary is filled with these political terms, these really jargony political terms, but that this is how he organizes the world. He doesn't see the world in terms of ethnic identities or religious affiliations or even racial identities or gender or class or any of the other number of things that we divide each other into. For him, the way to see the world is in which political ideology your state subscribes to. That's absolutely right. And that plays a huge part in the last two chapters of this book. Well, if I didn't mention it already, Anna Trees is also a part of this group that's standing around planning the broadcast. And just to get some chit-chat out of the way, the group also discusses the state of the war that they are all entrenched in. The Chinese are responsible for holding Green River, and they are armed with Martian technology. And generally lets the group know that they have been pushed back to the other side of the river. They've crossed the river twice, once going forward, once going backward. And this is kind of portentous. It's a negative thing, not only uh, for the battle, but also in terms of this Chinese superstition around the battle. And with the, with all these introductions taken care of and the updates of the battle are reported, uh, the group now begins to plan this broadcast in earnest. John notices that Emil is using this opportunity to understand clearly what kind of outcomes, ultimate outcomes, General Lee and President Huggins are shooting for with their political clout. Lee, we learn, wants expanded Chinese control in the U.S. as a result of them helping out the Martians. Um, while Huggins really wants his status as rightful president to equate to his being officially in charge of Ares and the Martians in the U.S. He wants more power. 
so John kind of notices all this stuff, and then he and Anna excuse themselves um, so that they can have a, a private moment together, which they've not had since they returned from the rescue mission at the rectification center. They go out to a uh, the pool of hovercrafts, uh, the motor pool, and get into one and fly around, and they see lights in the distance, which is evidence of a battle. They talk about the concerns of the day, which are materiel and fighting men. And John brings up that he's worried that everyone is sort of counting their chickens before they hatch by naming him Secretary of Defense and giving out all these honorific titles to people in the president's cabinet. And Anna says, you know, like, you should be glad you're going to be going down in history. Like, this is an important role when we win. But John doesn't really want to go down in history in this way. He doesn't want to be the Secretary of Defense, and he doesn't want Emil to be the one who's responsible for setting up the constitutional government either. I think John's problem here, and it's not textually explicit, is that the people still aren't running the show. They're all still being told what to do just by different groups of people, and it's not really a return to constitutionalism until the people consent to it. What motivates John and really, I think, you know, everyone in Operation Aries is a desire to participate in the political process. But what is actually happening, what is actually playing out here is that there are simply two competing factions, one of which happens to have the name of the constitutional government, but isn't actually talking about allowing the people to choose who is in charge. There is an assumption that it has to be Huggins. And so it really just amounts to a Game of Thrones that is largely being funded and even really planned by foreign powers. And that's a real nightmare situation, I think, for anyone, but I think especially for a revolutionary. Right. And John even begins to see the Martians as foreigners in this sense. And Anna is pretty dismayed by this revelation, this this uncovering of ideological differences. But John just indicates that Anna is misunderstanding him when he says, when he talks about not wanting to be the Secretary of Defense. And here's what he says. He just thinks it's a bit premature to give importance to somebody of no special ability selected by chance. And I think he's not only referring to himself, but as we also noted, the, the whole system that's being put into place. Anna remains silent and she's very angry with John. Before we move on from this, Brandon, I want to point out just a few instances of some, what I thought were some really excellent writing from Wolf here in this opening scene of chapter nine. It is no surprise to you. And it's no surprise to anyone who's listened to our episode covering the story. I but I love nature writing. And because this scene is largely taking place outside in the winter, we get some beautiful nature writing from Wolf here. And there's just two sentences that I'd like to, to share with our listeners. Now, the first is this. It stood under towering sycamores on a wooded knoll, and in summer would have been a pleasant spot. Now the trees lifted naked white arms around it, seeming to sift the blowing snow between their fingers. I thought the imagery in that was just fantastic. I was so evocative. I could see that. I could feel it with all my senses, and I I wanted to be there. There is a lot of really great examples of prose, of Wolf's ability to write great prose in these last two chapters of this book <laughs> that have 
largely been absent from the rest of the novel. And it was a real pleasure for me in kind of coming to the end of this book and finding the wolf that I recognize in some of the writing. Yeah, I agree. And and just for good measure, here's another one that uh, this is while they're they're flying in the hovercraft. And I thought this was especially beautiful. Below them, the snow-covered countryside spread itself like a map on white paper. The hills indicated mostly by the bluish shadows they cast in the light of the setting sun. Again, that has uh, is largely visual in nature, but tells us about the passage of time and sort of paying attention, special attention to light and to shadow, which we know are things that very much concern Wolf here. We have had light and shadow already used, and we talked a lot about them in, in our coverage of the Hunters, for example, and it's really great to see him using that imagery again here in just what really could amount to almost a throwaway sentence that's just setting the stage for the conversation that uh, between John and Anna that you've just narrated. Yeah, it's really beautiful writing. And then I've just got one more thing I want to point out. And this is something that just really touched me about the conversation between John and Anna early on before Anna gets upset with John, or perhaps we might say before John upsets Anna uh, with his ideological differences. Wolf gives us this narration. He, ha- he has John Castle ask Anna a question and he writes, and Wolf writes, mostly to hear her speak again. And I thought, how beautiful, how lovely that is. What a sentiment that he's just so thrilled to be reunited with Anna that he just wants to hear the sound of her voice. He wants her to keep talking so he can hear her voice. And I love what this suggests about about Wolf's own love of his wife, Rosemary. I just thought it was very, very touching. Yeah, this is one of the moments of the book where you get a really full sense of the characters and their relationships to one another. And this... Uh, kind of, in my mind, undeveloped love story between John and Anna really shines at this moment in the book. You get the their love for one another, and there's a conflict, and their frustration, and they're being torn apart by this cause, and we're going to be left wondering, will love overcome for them, or will the ideological lines be the most important thing? I think this is a great section of the book, to be honest. We'll talk about this more in our wrap-up episode when we're going to focus on the craft of this book and whether or not it works for us. But it's fair to say that Wolf hangs an awful lot of the emotional part of the story on this relationship between John and Anna. I will not bear the lead. I'll say I don't think that he sells it very well. I don't think he writes it very well, except for this passage. It's all here. Right. I totally agree. I could not agree more. John and Anna uh, return to base and land the hovercraft, and they're greeted by Japhet, our old friend. (laughs) And he helps them push the hovercraft back into place on the base. And this is another kind of great, just evocative moment. And just these three old friends hanging hanging out together again, like, you know, when when Luke and Han and Leia are all in the hangar in (laughs) in Empire Strikes Back or something like that. Oh, I see. Now, I was thinking that this was the scene on Yavin in uh, their first Star Wars movie. But but I'm glad we both went to different parts (laughs) of Star Wars for this. (laughs) Jafe asks um, John and Anna how everything is going, and Anna pointedly mentions John's promotion to Secretary of Defense. And Jafe is, uh, obviously, he's oblivious to the conflict that just occurred between them. And so he just congratulates John. John and Nana separate and John heads to his office to work, though what he really needs is some time to just be free to let his thoughts roam, 
to not be caught up in so many battles and conflicts. But he has to plan the raid on the East Coast Rectification Center, and there are reports to be read, etc., etc. He's got a lot to do. But he feels peace as he begins to work, because here, at least, with the war, he understands how to address and deal with the problems. John reads a report about the voluntary enlistments to the Martian cause. And many of these enlistees are deserters, I suppose, from the militia or the pro-tem government, who are already, we're told, quote, familiar with the terminology of the social sciences, and especially with those terms common to the Marxist and Fabian schools, who only have limited comprehension of the meaning of these schools and reject many of their premises. And John thinks about this young man that he rescued in the last chapter from the Rectification Center, whom he wrongly assumed to have understand the meaning of being revolutionary or of being a counter-revolutionary. John had thought that this was something the Russians had kind of brainwashed into him. But now with this report, John is given to understand that a lot of these terms are still floating around in the American population. Yeah, this is going to form the backbone of our discussion of these chapters this passage right here. John, by reading these reports, he also puts it together that his force, Ares, is classified as Force C, which is like third after the Martian force and the Chinese force. So they're like, we're told in the beginning of this that they are the diversionary force used, they're expendable. And John, is that is just really being communicated to us, the reader, and to John as well. And This calls to mind a quote to John's mind that uh, Franco supposedly said, four columns converge on the city, but there's a fifth column already within it. And here we get this other sense that John is meant to be leading a revolution for these people who already are wagering on the amount of power they'll have after he succeeds will get. And it's just really problematic for John. He struggles with this. Yeah, so we're seeing just very subtly here how the actual American forces in this war are being minimalized and in every level. And it's happening on both sides. We're in this scene we're seeing we are seeing only how that's happening on, I don't know, the good guy side there, or at least the protagonists. Uh, but we, it is happening on the bad guys side as well, with the Russians taking over more and more of the war effort and the government with these rectification centers. We will see very shortly that there are more and more Russian soldiers uh, in the United States as well. And what I think is really interesting about this report about pro-tem government deserters and John's musings about being a fifth column is that everyone is thinking about this war in terms of these significant ideologies, much like General Lee was. We get, as you say, average, really uneducated Americans being uh, versed in the terminology of Uh, Marxist and Fabian forms of socialism, for example. But even John is thinking about his own experiences in terms of the Spanish 
civil war of the mid 20th century. And not only is he thinking about the term fifth column, which is a term that we use all the time in our common parlance without necessarily really thinking about the origin of that term with Franco, but John even mentions the ideology of Franco, uh, phalangism here. So it's not just that it's the phrase and that he's remembering this origin of the phrase. The ideology behind the phrase is relevant to the way that John is processing information here. That's absolutely right. And I think that that is ultimately the theme of the novel is the internal struggle of the people who are fighting against perhaps multiple powers that are beyond their control and trying to get a win for themselves. And I think that's kind of the theme developed in the last two chapters. And I think for me, kind of the title, the title of the novel being Operationaries really oriented me and my reading to kind of understand what Operationaries was, what they were trying to achieve, when it's really a novel about John fighting against all the systems that are still trying to gain control over his life. And I think, you know, something like the fifth column might have been a more apt title than Operationaries. It certainly would have helped orient my reading of the novel a little bit more clearly, because we do get such a clear development of themes in the last two chapters. While John is thinking all these things, he is interrupted from his work by a secretary. She tells John that Lothrop wants to see him. Uh, It's time for the broadcast, or at least the broadcast is beginning. Lothrop and Lee, we learn, have already given their messages, and now it's President Huggins' turn, and then John will be given a turn to speak. Uh, John asks someone where Anna is, and they don't know, and then we're treated to a long speech (laughs) by President Huggins about the founding of the Constitution and the need to assist the Martians, because if they leave now, they'll be different when they return again. It'll take them 100 years or something to come back. And we learn that, and he also talks about how the people who wish for the return of the constitutional government need to act now. And he espouses the importance of the sciences and calls for a return to the great heritage of America, which was once full of people who acted on their own behalf rather than waiting for someone to act for them. And he finishes up his brought his speech by saying, if we wait now for someone else to restore our freedoms to us, we will wait forever. And John compliments Huggins then on the speech when he finishes. Someone approaches John to let him know that Miss Trees has left and has left a letter for him as well. And she has taken it upon herself uh, as a need of the constitutional government to be the one who treats with President Boyd the pro tem president Huggins' speech is perhaps out of control that might be the the way to describe it but this is maybe the clearest statement of wolf's own political ideology here that we get in the novel this is not president Huggins' speech this is gene wolf's speech i think but there are some interesting things going on in the speech besides really being an access point to wolf's own ideologies at least as they existed in the mid 60s i think There's a really interesting statement here that Huggins makes. He claims that if the Soviets annex the United States as a puppet state, the U.S. will lose its language and its heritage. And this is a really interesting claim to me. And I can understand where this might be something that that people still only a, a little more than a decade into the Cold War might have been worried about. But this is not actually something that we really see happening in places that do become Soviet puppet states. This didn't happen in Poland or 
Hungary. It didn't even really happen in Ukraine or Kazakhstan, for that matter. This loss of language and heritage, this loss of 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 individual cultural identity. That is not something that happened. And I think it's really telling, though, that that is a fear that Wolf has, that a fear that Wolf has about the United States, potentially, that he's that he's voicing here. And it makes me wonder how much people in the 60s in the United States really understood about the Eastern Bloc. And I think it probably was very little. And I, th- that- I think that's historically the case, that, that there were people that knew the atrocities that were going on in the Soviet Union and its annexed states. But they did a very good job of keeping quiet about the millions of people they would starve uh, or, you know, when they were taking over the farm production and things like that. The Soviet Union was very good at hiding its catastrophic failures from the West. And a lot of people believed uh, maybe until, you know, the 70s or so that communism was still a viable option, at least this kind of Stalinist communism you know, that that we saw in the 20th century was a viable option for governance because they hid their failure so well. And that's certainly right. But the wolf, wolf here is actually imagining that more is going on than actually is. And I don't mean to minimize the deaths of hundreds of millions of people or to suggest that uh, Stalinist communism or the Soviet Union were not uh, operating as, as colonial or imperialist oppressors to Poles and Hungarians and Cossacks and Ukrainians. They certainly were in a lot of ways. But we know now that they were unable and not even really all that willing to squash people's uh, language and heritage, though there were a lot of cultural elements that were suppressed, religion, uh, a very important one. But Wolf here, I think, is just underestimating the resilience of language and the resilience of culture, even in the face of oppressors. And that, that's really the, o- the only point I want to make here. I see. Yeah. And you, you don't even see that when, when, when the French kind of took over England for a little while. You get a whole new set of language, maybe like, you know, to describe bureau- bureaucratic processes or things like that. But the, the language of the common people always remains. Um, it's very hard to take that away, even when you're enforcing something official. All, all that happens is when you say something is official is that that's all you're recognizing, not that there are unofficial things going on. And, and I think you're absolutely right. It is very difficult to actually remove a language and a heritage from a people. It takes generations. But you can take all their, all their agriculture. <laughs> Right. And we're, we're going to hear a little bit about that. <laughs> well, what follows after this speech is a, a, a kind of a, an extraordinarily long description of this battle for Arlington, which takes the form, uh, at least the generic form of almost technical reports. It's very disengaged. It's very detached about personnel losses and equipment damage. So to make a long story short, uh, the Martian contingent fails. Uh, many people die off page, including Sarah Yoshida, who was uh, the gal who got Anna Trees into Aries to begin with. And the chapter ends with Force B, which is the Chinese force, waiting to be evacuated as they are besieged. And it's here in the Battle of Arlington that we get our first glimpse of the Russians using soldiers directly to combat the 
revolutionaries. And something that's particularly notable here with the Russians is that they are using their soldiers for suicide missions with explosives. And although Wolf doesn't actually give us this detail here, I have to believe that these are the roboticized soldiers, right? And so we really see that the Russians are roboticizing these people, not just so that they'll be compliant and follow orders, but so that they really can be used for cannon fodder, that their deaths will not be the deaths of people. And as we talked about in previous episodes, this really harkens to Wolf's story, The Horrors of War. Yeah, I absolutely agree. These are the roboticized soldiers, and we see the the kind of sinister, dark side of this process, which isn't just what we were pitched earlier on, which is we can get rid of crime and everything's beautiful and lovely and the people don't fight one another. It's that when they, when we need them to fight, they'll die willingly. And it's very dark. Before we get out of this chapter, I just want to point out one other case of what I thought of as being some pretty good prose. And this is when the Operation Ares troops are landing in Arlington. And Wolf writes that the LBVs unloaded the living soldiers of Force B upon the graves of dead soldiers far more numerous when these soldiers are being let off in Arlington Cemetery. It's not the best line I've ever read, but I thought it was pretty evocative and I think also sets the stage here for what Wolf is doing where he is having these revolutionaries, these constitutionalist forces, literally fighting for their country's liberation atop the graves of dead american soldiers it's a very evocative image it's a very symbolic though wolf hides the symbolism i think pretty well by couching it in this kind of hyper technical type of language but yeah i too thought yeah here they are fighting on on the bodies of kind of those who went before them fighting the same battle at least as it's told to us (laughs) And I think we can contrast this emphasis on remembering the American war dead from generations past with the way that the Russian soldiers are being treated in this battle as as inconsequential by their leadership. I think this is meant to seem as a cultural contrast for us. Right, because when a bomb is strapped to your body, there's nothing to bury. There's nothing to take home. And there's no place for a memorial for those People, I mean, it would be hard to imagine, it'd be hard for me to imagine, I should say, uh, a kind of even a war memorial where the statue is of a, a citizen with a suicide vest. It's not a part of war that has ever been recognized as um, kind of glorifying to the nation who engages in those practices. Yeah, you'd have to put him on horseback. <laughs> At least or strap the bomb to the horse, I guess. <laughs> right. Well, that, that brings us to the end of Chapter 9. So should we, should we get into Chapter 10? Yes, let's do it. Chapter 10 is called Stand Back and Be Statesman. This is the final chapter of Operation Ares. Chapter 10 opens with John, Emil, President Huggins, and Tia Marie, whom Huggins has given the title of Secretary of State. She's the first woman secretary of state yeah that this is absurd i yes (laughs) she when we meet her she is half naked in an abandoned warehouse in new york city leading a cult of animists 
and now she's going to be the Secretary of State of the new newly reconstituted United States. They got to have bodies for these positions, I guess. I don't know. It's. <laughs> I think we just Wolf wanted her narrative concluded in some way. I mean, she's a rabble rouser and a protester and a cult leader, and I don't know what Huggins is thinking in appointing her to this position as a diplomat, as the primary diplomat of the the United States. But I think we already got six new characters introduced in the last chapter. Maybe Wolf is doing us a favor by not (laughs) making us meet one more. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I just, and I only point out its absurdity here because I think when we have our wrap up conversation with Mark Garamini, I think that this will be one of the elements that we really want to talk about when we are discussing the craft of this book. Yeah, I'm really excited for that conversation. And I hope our listeners know that all of this kind of prodding comes from a place of genuine love of of Gene Wolfe. And this novel is just, it's interesting and just seeing his development as a writer. This is um, what one reviewer called his apprentice novel, which usually doesn't get published. And I think, you know, for those who have read this book and have read later Gene Wolfe, they know why most apprentice novels don't get published. And it's why Wolfe has really distanced himself from it as well. I have wanted to let Gene Wolfe know that we're doing this project, but I'm afraid to do it until we have gotten beyond Operation Aries because he, I think, would be upset with us for covering this novel. Yeah, he's very, very outspoken about his distaste for this novel. He has withheld it from being republished. And um, I don't know, I heard an anecdotal story it might have been on on one of the uh, the Gene Wolfe Appreciation Society or somewhere where one of his fans said they were going to read the book Operationaries to him at a convention and he said something like hey i thought you were my friend <laughs> Um, (laughs) Well, we're so eager to be done with this book, Brandon, that we're getting well ahead of ourselves, not just uh, in terms for this episode, but we're getting two weeks ahead of ourselves here. So let's uh, get back to what is actually happening in Chapter 10. That's right. Well, as I mentioned, this group of people, John Emile, President Huggins and Tia Marie, they are in China watching a parade. And this parade has many images of Mao, the region of Mao as well as of Marx, Engels, and Stalin. And there are even small images of the guests being held up at the parade. The parade ends, and the Americans and Lothrop, who is, you know, the Martian, uh, they all return to their hotel. And John kind of separates a little bit from the group. The group hangs around for a little bit. John heads out with a hospitality professional, maybe also a spy named Flowering Quince. Huggins comments on the nature of the orderly gardens, and he says that, quote, they tell us something about the way things ought to be. Um, This is just some interesting imagery that Wolf throws in here and maybe tells us something about Huggins' own idea about nature. But what's interesting is that we covered in our Carvonigate episode, To Be or Not To Be, about the garden imagery in terms of representing ideology and how maybe noxious it really is. And this just called that to mind for me in like a very, very particular way. Yeah, that's a really fascinating observation. I didn't catch that, but I think that that's 
I think that that is definitely something that's at play here. We talked in our discussion about religion, about gardens, and this is really important for Tia Marie's group and we also and also for Christians. And we've seen this as we keep talking about in the short story, How the Whip Came Back as well. And that's, I think your comment right now, Brandon, actually points out to me or suggests to me how complex and, and nuanced even the use of gardens as a metaphor within Christianity are. And uh, I think that's uh, I think that's a really shrewd observation. We should, we should keep our eye on that. Absolutely. I, I'm sure there will be more gardens in wolf novels. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in the course of the conversation between John and Flowering, Quince, uh, we, the reader, get confirmation that the Chinese, uh, the Martians, and Aries have lost the significant battle of Arlington. Uh, Flowering Quince wants to know what it's like to experience battle as John has, as a disembodied agent, uh, you know, as, as a writer in someone else's consciousness. Uh, John gives a flippant answer and he changes the subject. And a few moments later, they are interrupted by a person who lets them know that the treaty has been agreed to. Huggins does not want to sign the treaty, but John encourages him to do so. So Huggins signs this treaty and the group leaves China. On the plane ride back, John and Emil get into an argument about the terms of the treaty. Uh, John isn't sure what's in it, which is funny that they're arguing about it, but he is certain that it's a bad deal. He gives this hilarious line that says, like, we bought a free lunch, uh, which is a line I really love. <laughs> but before Emil really answers any of these questions about the treaty, he, he wants to know why John thinks he was brought to China. John responds that he is just window dressing. Uh, you know, he's got this honorific title and he's been a part of this thing from the beginning. But Emil says that that is not the case at all. John, in Emil's eyes, has a first rate strategic mind. And I think, you know, we're showing this early on with the with the chess game with the captain. And John really shouldn't take it too hard that the battle for Arlington was lost because it was nearly won. And it was nearly won against such a large, overwhelming force. So with this bit of chatter out of the way, Emil explains the terms of the contract and, and kind of the ideas behind the terms. China is trying to gain control of the continental United States. And agreeing to the treaty pushes China, the, uh, the Chinese down one particular path of achieving that goal. And, and w with the Chinese on that path, the Martians and Aries have a short window of time to subvert these actions before the Chinese can implement a full-scale invasion. If Lothrop and Huggins had refused to sign the treaty, the Chinese would have sent 3 million troops to invade the United States. So Lothrop thinks that he and John have until midsummer to come up with a way to thwart the invasion. Here's where we see our American and Martian revolutionary forces attempting to grapple with the fact that this whole situation is a pro becoming a proxy war between the Soviet Union and China. 
and attempting to get out of that, attempting to undermine the beginning of that conflict before it can really get get started and that we see here i guess really that in some ways and in some ways i think that this is functioning for wolf as a positive here and showing us that although this should be obvious to both sides that this is what's happening it is only the revolutionaries who are working to do anything about it even before they've actually won the war and in fact even while they're losing the war and that the pro tem government doesn't even notice that this is actually what's happening and therefore isn't doing anything about it either. Right. And all that becomes explicit at the near the end of this chapter where John gets to meet with the president and the president thinks he's actually being threatened when John tells him that the Russians and Chinese are trying to take over the country and he needs to be a stronger leader if he's going to stop that from happening or somebody else will be. Yeah, and so all all of that is true, and we get that sense, Brandon, because we have finished the book and we're thinking about it in toto at this point, but it was not clear to me my first read through this that that's what was going on, and I think that it's because Wolf makes a, mis- a narrative misstep here where he doesn't actually tell us what the plan is. He cuts away from this conversation while it's happening. In He cuts away from it in Media Rest, where we know that Lothrop and John Castle are continuing to discuss the details of this plan, but Wolf doesn't want to let the reader know the plan because he wants there to be surprise later, or maybe he it's because he wants there to be suspense. I'm not really quite clear what the motivation here is, but he wants us to keep turning the pages in order to discover what the plan is. But by doing that, he really really undermines the thematic point that he's trying to to make here, and I just don't think it works well. No, it definitely doesn't. The other option here, of course, is that the editor just excised all of this planning because it would be repeated in the next three pages and didn't think it was worth having in the book twice, especially as, you know, in the editor's mind, the book is getting pretty close to being over. And while what we may have lost in sort of content, uh, thematic content, we still retain all the action. So it, it's at this point in the novel, it's impossible to tell how much thematic content we're really missing. I think all the action is here. And these last couple chapters move a lot faster than the rest of the book because they're not bogged down with an excess of themes and characters expositing at one another, kind of Ayn Rand style about <laughs> political ideologies. And so I'm not sure. You know, I. To be honest, I kind of like what the editor has done with this book. I think the last half moves much more swiftly. But as you mentioned, the story does jump in time six weeks here in the middle of this conversation about how John and Emil are going to set up what eventually becomes kind of a classic mousetrap, narratively speaking. Um, We find John on an Indian freighter carrying 25 40-kilogram chests of gold. The idea is that Ares is going to create a situation where the world is convinced that the U.S. pro-tem government has come into possession of all of this gold. This news will somehow destabilize the Russian and Chinese hold on the U.S. And with Ares being in 
actual possession of the gold, they will gain leverage over the pro-Tem government and be able to end the conflict on favorable terms, terms favorable to Ares and the Martians, at least. But things really go awry during the the handoff of the gold due to the lack of trust that the Indians have with Ares because of a role of photograph film uh, of the Ares group's trip to China that has come into the Indians' possession. I don't know. It's all it's all there, guys. Go go to the book and read it if you want. Yeah, there's there's <laughs> complex geopolitics happening here, and that's really the crux of the solution of this war and the conclusion of the novel here are all these geopolitical balances of of who's opposed to whom uh, is the enemy of my enemy my friend is the friend of my enemy my enemy these sorts of things that i'm not sure i ever enjoy them and i particularly didn't like them here in a wolf novel it's a bit much to shoehorn into 20 pages at the end of a novel where none of this has been introduced as a major motivating factor or thematic factor of the book a book that starts out with a simple man a school teacher trying to overcome the oppressive thumb of uh, 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 the sheriff it's it's your classic walking tall story basically yeah we get from there to geopolitics in fewer than 200 pages and and this is something again we keep foreshadowing i guess but this again is something we'll talk about in in two weeks in our wrap-up episode right well because the gold handoff goes so poorly due to all of this intrigue i suppose you'd call it uh john is violently captured by the captain who has been promoted to being the general uh, is still no name given and the general also captures all of the gold Lothrop heads back into space uh, with all being lost, basically, and abandons John. After a period of time of being tormented, John is finally summoned to the general. Now, John doesn't know that the general is the captain, and there's a bit of narrative obfuscation going on here, but uh, needless to say that these two men are reunited, and it feels so good. The general explains <laughs> that it's actually due to John that he has been promoted. And this is because that he had the prescience to to see John as the leader of Ares and report it to his superiors before the conflict began. And then when the broadcast happened and John was on the television saying, my name is John Castle, I'm the leader of Ares, the captain looked real good in the eyes of his superiors. But the captain is mostly interested in the content of the film canister that the Indians had aboard their vessel. And he doesn't care a lot about the photos themselves, but he cares about the fact that there was a meeting with the Chinese and what the content of that discussion was. And as there are no Martians left on Earth and no resistance left, and the leaders of the resistance has been captured, there's no need for John to be coy but still john says nothing and he's placed in the back of a truck that holds some of the gold uh, in a convoy of vehicles that are returning to arlington well the convoy runs into some trouble because there's not enough diesel to get them to where they need to go 
eventually they're trapped in an ambush of the genuinely poor people that the government claims that they're helping. And these people want the gold for themselves because they're not really satisfied with what the government provides. And they can move to Canada or whatever. <laughs> it's just a little ridiculous. Um, well, we're getting our, this is part of our tour of what the dystopian United States looks like that we've, we've commented on in episodes previous to this. We spent a good amount of time with the urban poor in New York. And so now we are getting to spend a little bit of time with the rural poor here in North Carolina. So this contingent here of the rural poor are dealt with by a separate contingent of people who believe that they can help the Peace Guard out of their ambush in return for some of the gold because they have access to the gas. So they took care of the first group and now their second group. Here we have, you know, maybe structurally there's significance here to the ultimate mousetrap that's being laid by John between John, the U.S., the Chinese, and Russians. But it's a little too late in the game to be playing this type of structural game with the narrative. So the new contingent of people who want to help the Peace Guard uh, get the general to go with them to ensure the delivery of the gold. Uh, they take him with them to get the oil. John had found a pistol earlier, and he takes over the convoy on his end. And we learn that this separate contingent of rural poor is secretly remaining members of Ares who are able still to communicate telepathically with their little implants. So all that just ends abruptly, and the gold is back under the control of Ares, which gives John some leverage with the government of the U.S., the pro-tem government, and he uses that leverage uh, to get a meeting with President Pro-Tem Boyd. Yeah, and this is going to be the final scene of the novel. We are. This is really the home stretch here. John is invited by the president to discuss terms of peace uh, with with President Boyd because they're also anxious to end the war, even though they're winning. But first, John discovers that Anna Trees is okay, and he and Anna get to go chat for a little bit, and John tells Anna the whole plan. This is just, an, you know, th I think when we're talking about why this relationship doesn't really land, it's because Anna is the receiver of exposition for John more than she is a character with her own motivations. And... Uh, Wolf keeps her off page unless John needs to say something that the reader needs to hear to understand the plot of the novel. And that kind of intimate pillow talk, even though they're never on a scene in the same bed, is, is uh, I don't know, in terms of craft, a little inelegant, I think, for what we're doing here at the end of this novel. That's right. But I will say that he is trying to do more with Anna Trees than most writers of summer action movies do with their female characters that i will agree with <laughs> the plan is this the pro tem government was given the gold by john so that john basically could get the meeting in chess terms the gold was the queen and it was sacrificed so that the whole game could be won the end game here is america's freedom from foreign influence and this is something that boyd as as you and i intimated earlier, Glenn, does not yet fully understand. Boyd does not quite know the extent to which America is being threatened by foreign power. In a roundabout way, John and the Martians have been able to get a message to a British diplomat 
who is sympathetic to Mar- the Martians and Ares. And that diplomat commun- communicated a message uh, that will be surely overheard by the Russians and the Chinese. And this message will cause the Chinese to stage their troops for invasion of the U.S. near the Russian border. But the staging ground will put the Russians on full alert, and it will be a few years before the Russians and the Chinese can disentangle this comedy of diplomatic errors. But it will be enough time for the U.S. to regain its strength under the new constitutional government. With that as kind of background, John and and President Boyd finally get around to discussing the terms of peace between the Martians and the U.S. So these are the terms John gives. John wants an end to the harassment of scientific and technical people. He wants the reinstatement of the right to bear arms, with the exception of drug addicts and people with a criminal history. He wants an end to the system of welfare payments to be replaced with universal basic income. There's a lengthy debate here about welfare, about keeping people on welfare versus universal basic income that it's oddly relevant to the world we live in today. And there's a, it's tinged with some maybe kind of theological ideas about mankind's nature. And, you know, all of this has already basically happened. It's just changing the, the meaning of it. So the, uh, the government has already ended its harassment of scientific and technical people because they needed them to design the infrastructure necessary to fight the war. Most of the people already bear arms because they were members of militia. And recategorizing welfare payments as universal basic income isn't the end of the world for the pro-temp government, especially because John proposes that this will all be funded by foreign aid from China and Russia. They're going to keep them in check based on the Chinese and Russian desire to gain political influence over the U.S., Other terms include the Martians being supplied uh, in the supply chain from the U.S., just like the old days, and the Martians will also be given 50 seats in the Senate because there will be 50 new states on Mars, and the Constitution will also be restored. The president pro tem agrees to all of the terms, but he wants something in return. Boyd wants to be the new president of this system. He wants to run but he doesn't want Ares or the Martians to put anyone up against him. So it's not running entirely without opposition, but it's running without opposition from the heroes of the revolution. Right, Right, exactly. So all the terms are agreed to. And now the only thing that John needs president Boyd to do is to switch the lights of Arlington on and off three times. Once night falls. And with that whimper, the book ends. (laughs) Yeah, I can't believe it. We are we have come to the end of Gene Wolfe's first novel. There's so much happening in this last scene that I couldn't believe that that was how it ended, that that was the last line. I thought that there was so much new material being introduced even in this last scene that 
there needed more of a conclusion, more of a wrap up to it. Uh, we don't get it. And that might not be bad. In fact, it leaves us with a lot to think about. And before we move into our discussion of these two chapters, I just want to uh, emphasize a few things that do happen in this last scene. And th- the first is just kind of a fun th- world building detail to kind of maybe draw to a close our discussion from chapters one and two, the first discussion we had about this novel, where we really focused on the world building and how the this dystopia came to be this question of was it the science program that bankrupted the United States was it welfare that bankrupted the United States you know it wasn't clear to us at the beginning but it seems close to explicit here in this final scene that the space program did not bankrupt the United States that what happened was that people who wanted to implement a welfare system thought that by cutting the space program's funding that was, you know, that was billions of dollars per year that could be spent on a welfare program. When President Boyd is explaining this stuff to John Castle and really explaining it to us, the readers, he brings up the 1965 L.A. riots, which are, are, are known today as the Watts riots, which was a huge deal in the 60s. Uh, this was a real important episode in the civil rights movement. Again, this is something that is strangely relevant to us. Again, this is really about police brutality of African-American communities and especially young African-American men. Wolf here posits a, a future America in which riots of this sort are happening in every city for 20 years every summer, and that it's it's this two decade long series of riots in every city in America that provides the crisis that then precipitates the suspension of the Constitution. It's interesting to me that we don't get this explanation clearly until the last page of the book. And maybe that's something we'll talk about in our next episode when we go into craft. Um, but I thought it was nice to kind of come full circle here with the world building. Right. And it's unfortunate to me that we don't get that sense of the world uh, really throughout the book. We do get a little bit about the the riots in Atlanta or the, the, the people are dissatisfied with the government, but our tour through urban America that we're treated to in the New York scenes, there's no hint or indication of a city that's wracked by the destruction of riots. It's setting is close to winter rather than in the summer. And and when you just think about structurally reinforcing some of these things, uh, just the choice of moving John's time in New York to the summer to witness something like this and have somebody comment on it would be so much more powerful than two people sitting in an office discussing something the reader has never seen. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about craft because, you know, as uh, you know, most careful reading often leads to revelations about craft. And I think this book taught me a lot about Gene Wolfe and a lot about what he learned from writing this book. And I learned an awful lot from reading it. Much agreed. I think you're pointing to this uh, the question of, of showing rather than telling. And I think we're going to spend a lot of time on that in our wrap-up episode. But that is for two weeks in the future still. But before we move into this episode's discussion, I just want to emphasize a few other things, or really one other thing here in this last scene. And, and, and that is that this book opens with a lone, intelligent high school teacher having to deal with an oppressive government on a the small level of his hometown. But we are 
led to believe that this pro-tem government is an utter tyranny through and through at every level and that every official of it is morally bankrupt. But we come to the end of this book here with our protagonist, our hero, our high school teacher confronting the head of this tyrannical government and we find a pretty nice guy. We find that President Boyd has real, genuine concern for the well-being of all Americans. And that the disagreement between the pro-tem government and constitutionalism, the, the disagreement between President Boyd and John Castle is about how that concern should be manifest. They even agree, Boyd and John Castle, about what is the root of civil unrest in America's big cities, which is that it is unemployment and it is substance abuse. The only place they disagree is in how to deal with it. President Boyd is all in favor of the welfare system, and John Castle is not. As you say, he wants to replace the welfare system with a universal basic income. For him, the difference is that welfare takes away human dignity and motivation. It destroys community. It destroys family bonds. We've seen this at play in the novel already. Whereas universal basic income is just that. It's income without strings or oversight. And so it doesn't create a culture of dependency. It's something that people can treat as a a salary. Right. And this sort of distinction where the same thing is being provided under a different context, featured in an earlier discussion we had uh, in earlier chapters about kind of the context of history and and the meaning of things, of artifacts. And we talked about this with the Fist Fink and with the Martian device, which is maybe even more invasive. But the fact that it's being used for the furthering of people's freedoms rather than their forcing people to be imprisoned by it is the key core distinction here. And so even though the gov- the money is coming from the same place, the meaning of the money is what is historically significant. When one last bit of foreshadowing before we move into the discussion, which is to simply to say that those are the sorts of things that I think we'll, we'll spend a lot of time talking with Mark Aramini about in our wrap-up discussion. But for now, I think I, w- I want to move into our discussion of these episodes, and I want to prime us to talk about ideologies in the wrap-up episode by really focusing on the ideologies, the political ideologies that we see at play in the novel, but especially invoked here in in chapter nine and a little bit in in chapter ten, and I think that that will give us some good grounds to talk about how the political screed of a self styled William F. Buckley conservative uh, hinges on the promotion of universal basic income, which here in 2017 right. is hailed as an extremely progressive, a Bernie Sanders style progressive. Idea, And so I think I want to prime us to have that conversation in the wrap up by talking about mid 20th century political ideologies as we see them in this novel. Fantastic. I think it's fair to say that Operation Aries is centrally concerned with questions of political ideology. And this is symptomatic of the age. This is clearly a book that's written in the mid 60s in the early part of the Cold War by someone who lived through the Second World War, right? This is, we are seeing represented here in this novel, 
all of the real concern with political ideology that dominates the early and mid 20th century. And Operation Aries is not the only science fiction book of this time to be wrestling with these same questions. I mean, I mean, Heinlein makes a whole career really out of out of dealing with political ideologies. Philip K. Dick also extraordinarily concerned with political ideologies, among other things, and the list could could go on. And political ideologies are really, in this period in the 20th century, wrapped up with questions of how societies and economies should best be managed. But they are also concerned about who gets to make the decisions, who gets to participate in the political process. And what I really want to do in our discussion here, Brandon, is to explicate this one passage that we get in the Martian report about pro-tem government deserters. And so I'll just read that passage again. A great many of these men are familiar with the terminology of the social sciences, and especially with those terms common to the Marxist and Fabian schools, while having only limited comprehension of their meaning and rejecting many of their premises. And I want to unpack what Marxist and Fabian means here, but I think it's going to be crucial for us to preface that by talking about philosophy of history, which is something you brought up uh, in our previous episode, Brandon, I know is something of a kind of a pet interest of yours. And so I think this will be a fun conversation to have. There are dozens, probably hundreds of philosophies of, of history. But I think for our purposes, we really need to talk about about Hegel, and we need to talk about Marx. But Brandon, I think before we get started on that prefatory work, we should preface that with just a sort of general discussion of what we mean by philosophy of history. And so I think I'll just kick it over to you and uh, let you tell listeners a little bit about what philosophy of history does. Philosophy of history is probably a bit of a of a misnomer. It should really be called philosophy of historiography. And what that means is that what philosophy of history does is look at the way historians talk about history what type of genres of history exist, and what major themes are developed. It's really more of a theory of narrative. It's a type of philosophy of narrative. So it's not about the content of history. It's about the structure of historical telling and what that in itself can tell us about the concerns of people doing the work of history. So one example is to look at a chronicle versus history. A chronicler, by definition, is someone who's writing down events as they happen uh, without necessarily an interest in how events resolve. A historian is looking at the passive event, past events and may have an interest in presenting the resolution in a way that, say, glorifies the king or praises the emperor or something like that. So there's a lot of interest in how stories are told, which is, you know, as, as not as a, only as a philosopher, but also as an English major, as a person interested in theory and one who scribbles himself from time to time. Narrative is uh, something that's often on my mind. And philosophy of history is an awesome way for me as a non-historian, but who does have a background in philosophy, in theories of representation and narrative, to it's it's my door into the world of history. And so it really should be categorized under the field of how do we write about 
the past and why are we writing it that way? And I'll say as a, as a historian that these questions don't really concern me. Uh, they don't concern most of my colleagues either uh, because they don't really get at the heart of how we do what we do, which is to try to uncover what it was like to live in the past by means of historical artifacts, documents, texts that are that have been left over from the past. That's not really what the philosophy of history is about. In fact, in many ways, philosophy of history is really about how people of the present are also historical beings, what their relationship with the past is, and also, in fact, and in, in, in maybe even more importantly, what the relationship of the people of the present is to the future. That's exactly right. And this is especially true in the 19th century when philosophy of history is really getting going. And this is a result of the significance of the late 18th and the early and mid 19th century in the human story, in human history. This is when the modern world or the high modern world that we live in today is being shaped, being invented, being developed. This is really the the transformation of the world from a from an agrarian society to an industrial society there is massive chaos massive change happening all over the globe but especially in in Europe with the revolutions uh, both political and technological and social happening all over the place and people have lots of questions about where we're headed, where our where European civilization is headed, where humanity is headed, what is the what is our future going to be like, and what is its relationship with our past? And these are questions that the German philosopher Hegel is asking, really right around the year eighteen hundred, uh, when he earns his degree, and for the next sort of th- three decades, really asking lots of questions. And Hegel's philosophy of history is significant on its own right. Hegel is an extremely important philosopher, but Hegel's, I think, I think, but I think it's fair to say that Hegel's philosophy of history is important because of how influential it is for Marx. And ultimately, we're going to be talking about Marx today, but we should start by going through what Hegel's philosophy of history is, which we're going to do in about 10 minutes, though you really ought to take an entire college course on this. And even then you still won't know completely what you're talking about. Yeah, a college course will introduce you to a broader popular themes than we'll be able to hit on today, but none of the controversies. <laughs> so um, yeah, I think we can start by saying zeitgeist, which really comes from Hegel. It's this idea of there being a spirit of the age, which is really, ideology is not maybe the word Hegel would use, though, though Marx would. It's the ruling thought of of the time period. And so that would be the spirit, the thing that animates history for the present, for the people living in it. What is an age, though? Well, this is where kind of Hegel is maybe the most influential, is, is that there are conflicts in history, uh, like what history, when philosophy, the term is like a, a dialectic, which is an impasse between two logical premises, where both are true and yet they are unresolved. And, and uh, Kant writes a lot of these dialectics out in his Critique of Pure Reason. Hegel takes this idea to history. He says there are movements that take place in, in ages, in periods of time. 
and that um, even this idea of epochs and ages really comes, I think, out of Hegel. And that out of the conflict in, in ages transition, this dialectic form of history takes place where one form of living, one spirit of the age, one period of time cannot live with another one. And a conflict arises. And out of this conflict grows really a new age, a new epoch. Uh, uh, It's a transformation. And this is how dialectical impasses get resolved. This is really mostly only relevant. It's a great way of telling the story of history, and people have done this. You have the idea of the Copernican Revolution, where like the sun is now the center of the, the, the universe and the earth revolves around it. That idea was not brand new to Copernicus. Copernicus was at a period of time where people were receptive to it, where the roots of the idea were able to go deep into society. And the questions that that idea brought up had a transform transformative effect on society. And here, this is like the revolution of ideas and how they take place. And it basically means there's no going back to the time before the idea where Earth was stationary and everything revolved around Earth. These are two ideas that could not exist together in the same universe. The same cosmos is probably a better word. And the con- the, the the conflict that that idea brought about brought about a new society, a new type of world to live in. In Hegel's philosophy, this resolution is always moving towards spiritual perfection. Humanity is always improving. And this is also where we get progressivism from, is that we should always be pushing these conflicts. We should always be pushing for these dialectical impasses because it's going to lead to ultimate perfection. Um, It's not a philosophy I really agree with or, or think is reasonable, but that's where um, progressivists kind of get their philosophical root from. And that's a very, very broad gloss of Hegelianism, at least as far as I think is relevant to our conversation. And we can tie it into Marx in a bit, but Glenn, I think you probably have more you want to say about it. Well, you've hit, you've hit many of the major points, but something that you didn't point out, I think explicitly, Brandon, is that Hegel's philosophy of history relies on a basic premise that history, that time, that human society, human civilization is teleological, which means that it is moving towards an end, a specific end, which is, of course, something a historian would absolutely disagree with, which is where we reject Hegel sort of wholesale. And the the, the end for the historical end anyway for Hegel is the fulfillment of, of like complete human freedom, right? The realization of human freedom. And and I'll quote just one sentence here from his lectures on the philosophy of world history, where he says, the question at issue is the ultimate end of mankind, the end which the spirit sets itself in the world. A new point, Brandon, to ages, this, this notion of epochs or ages or stages, perhaps we might call them. And Hegel sees the three in the world that, I, and I find this very interesting in terms of of someone who has to teach 
Western Civ and world history and actually has to deal with historical epochs and tell a big story to 40 or 50 students who have never heard any of this material before. I always find these periodization arguments really quite fascinating. And Hegel draws these periods or stages into three groups that are based around the types of freedoms that people had. His first stage is a period that he describes as as focusing around public freedom. And this is the Greek polis or the Greek city-state, this period of Aristotle in particular, and also the Roman Republic. His next stage is the period of individual freedom, and this is the Reformation. You'll notice immediately that he does not deal with the Roman Empire or the Middle Ages here because for him, these were a period of unfreedom. These were a moving backwards from the public freedom of the ancient, the, the ancient world proper. They were part of that dialectic tension that led to the next age, the resolution which led to the next better freedom in the next age. Yeah, and you can you can tell here, even if you have never heard of Hegel before, you can tell implicitly that he's a Protestant German because he does right. see he sees the Reformation as the undoing of this sort of Catholic tyranny and, and sees the Reformation, sees individual freedom in the Reformation in the form of of people being able to have uh, an individual relationship with, with God. Right, and this is core to the simple explanations of the enlightenment which is the 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 unshackling of people's minds um and the ability for the people to think for themselves to read their own bibles in their own tongue and to begin to question governments and and people became free people became individuals i should say rather at the point of the enlightenment which is just a form of historical storytelling. And people say this about all sorts of periods in early modernity. My students and I last semester looked at uh, a number of historiographical arguments about reading the Renaissance as the invention of the self and debated the merits of those arguments. And Yeah, and it's so funny, this idea of the invention of the self is, is assumed in any of the ancient Greek texts. It's one of the things that's conspicuously absent from... Plato or Socrates or Aristotle or many of the philosophers after them arguments because they already assumed, many of them, that there was such a thing as individual man. Well, this notion that the Renaissance is the invention of the self, not to take us on too far of a digression, is written about uh, extensively by one of Hegel's German-speaking contemporaries, Jakob Burkhardt. And in fact, when I did my historical methods class in graduate school, we read Hegel and Burkhardt really back to back because they both represent this flawed uh, understanding of how human history works. But to bring us back from that digression, let's look at what Hegel's third stage of human development is. And this is historical to us, but for Hegel, this was the present. He was seeing that he himself was living in the moment when this change was happening. And this is the change from public freedom to individual freedom. Our third stage is civic freedom. This is the modern state, what he calls the rational bureaucratic state. And this transformation is happening in his lifetime. And here's where these dialectics that you talked about are really important, because Hegel sees that he is living through one of them. And these these dialectical periods are periods of chaos, periods of struggle, periods of conflict. But out of the conflict, something new 
is born, something new arises. If you're thinking of a phoenix right now, you're not wrong. This is absolutely employed in the imagery of Hegel and his contemporaries. The classic sort of theory text for this dialectic is Sophocles' Antigone, which is about a a similar period of turmoil or an event which brings about this chaos in which a better status quo is brought into being. And it's really this notion of ages or epochs or stages and the conflicts that provide the transformation from one to another that supplies the central understanding of history and change, and especially the future for Marxism. And so I think now that we have done just a little bit of work with Hegel, we can we can move into talking about Marx. And I think I might be save getting to how Marx deals with these stages sort of towards uh, for the end of our of our discussion and to look at some of the kind of fundamental premises of Marxists under of Marx's understanding of how history functions, how change happens in human societies over time and what the future is going to hold. And I want to start just by talking about that Marx's understanding of the world in general, but the past especially, is something that we call, in in the historical profession anyway, historical materialism, which is to say that Marx understood historical change in terms of human systems of production, which differs very much from Hegel, who is understanding history in terms of people's freedoms. Marx is understanding history in terms of work in terms of labor and in a very material terms, how we get the food that we consume, how we have the shelters that we dwell in, how we produce resources, how those resources are shared, and how the exploitation of resources and the people who do that exploiting are themselves exploited and frequently oppressed by political systems. Uh, for Marx, societies develop around systems of production, not not the other way around. And that's extraordinarily important for his worldview. But precisely like Hegel, for Marx, history and humanity's trajectory is completely teleological. It is moving towards an end. But because Marx sees human society in terms of means of production rather than in terms of freedom, for him, society is moving towards communism. And and we'll talk a little bit more about what communism actually is uh, when we move out of the philosophy of, of history. But this influences the stages that Marx has, and and Marx sees more stages than Hegel does. Uh, Marx's stages are primitive communism of prehistoric peoples, which is to say, you know, prehistoric people living together in a sort of uh, in small communities where they are sharing resources. This is probably not actually what prehistoric human societies were like, but in the nineteenth century, without a lot of evidence, it's easy to argue that. His next stage of development is the slave societies of the ancient world. And it's extraordinarily important, I think, to contrast Marx's characterization of the ancient world with Hegel. For Hegel, this is a period of civic freedom. For Marx, these are slave societies. And the thing is, of course, uh, both are true. These are slaves. These are democratic city-states or republican city-states that rest on top of slave societies. That's difficult for us to square, I think, in contemporary America. And so it's easy then to see where Hegel and Marx would would look at them from different perspectives, maybe having maybe struggling actually to to unify both of those facts of the ancient world. 
Right. And, and part of the reason why it's hard for us to square today is because we have moved all of the production of our goods outside of the United States where we don't see the cost of labor and the kind of living conditions of the people who create our goods. Whereas in, in an agrarian society, that is to say a society where the main production of goods, what people think about in terms of the things they need is based on what they can get from the farm is very different than what we have today where what we think we need is an iPod or um, an iPhone or a computer or different things where the production is very costly to the people who create what we need. Is contemporary America a slave society or not is another debate that my students and I had last semester. Marx's third stage of human development is feudalism. Uh, and this is where he doesn't he does not ignore the Middle Ages. In fact, the Middle Ages are extraordinarily important for Marx. He characterizes feudalism as an aristocratic ruling class. Out of feudalism grows capitalism, the next stage in human development. And this is where the ruling class is made up of merchants who have overthrown the aristocrats of the Middle Ages. And Marx, writing in the 19th century, is living in the capitalist stage of human history. But Marx predicts that there will be a final stage of human history, and this will be communism, which is only attainable by an uprising of the workers. So, right, in, in Marx's idea, this is a type of revolution where the workers will understand fully what has been withheld from them as laborers under capitalism and will spark a revolution where they take control of the means of production. And perhaps because they have been laborers, because they are the most oppressed class of people in the society, they will understand that while things do need to be made, by owning the means of production, they can do away with the kinds of hierarchies in societies that continually cause conflict within society. They are the right people to rule. And it won't be ruling necessarily. It's merely owning the means of production. They will own the capital, which is the fruit of their work. Now, workers owning the means of production is really all that is meant by communism at this point. And Marx posits really an, an Edenic existence once workers own the means of production in, in which everyone will benefit mutually from participating together communally. That, that's where the, the, the commune in communism comes from. And because Marx is hinging this development of the next phase of humanity, of human civilization to, into communism, he's hinging it on an uprising of the workers. Marx sees this class struggle as as the dialectic that Hegel is using uh, in his scheme, in his philosophy of history, right? For Marx, what makes the change from primitive communism to slave societies is a class struggle. What makes the change from feudalism to capitalism is a class struggle. Class struggle replaces the dialectic for Marx. And this is expressed pretty clearly in the Communist Manifesto, and I'm going to just read a passage from this. Though the Communist Manifesto was co-written by Engels, and this passage I'm about to read actually is written by Engels and, and not by Marx. Engels writes, The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Free man and slave, patrician and plebeian, 
lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. Well, and, and so you can see in this text, right, the, the, the call for revolution. And when this call for revolution is answered, there are lots of struggles with really putting Marxism I- into place, functionally in society. Right. We saw this very clearly in the 20th century in the context that Wolf is writing in here in Operationaries with the Russian revolution and, and the implementation of what they originally sought out to put into place, which was Marxist communism. And the kind of tagline for this sort of implementation was this idea that each would be given according to his or her needs, and each would work according to their ability. And that sounds very utopian. It sounds, as you said, Edenic, that there would be no issue with this. The workers own the means of production. They understand what they need. But this was implemented and put into practice by a centralized government who basically assigned people's needs to them. And this is the struggle. This is why we've seen communism fail time and time again, both on a small scale and a large scale. It's this assignation of needs, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of what a human being is, which, though I'm not the biggest David Foster Wallace fan, he captures... I think what contemporary people are perfectly, which is basically need factories. We are th- beings who desire endlessly, and meeting needs is never enough for us. And so you see in the system of Russian communism an issue that uh, a society that very quickly became an oligarchy with a wild gap in wealth. And where mostly people were poor, but the people who were ruling in the ruling class lived well and saw no need to change because they would lose their benefits, which creates another class struggle. But that's the context, I think, for operationaries and what Wolf is thinking of when he's talking about communism. Russian communism itself goes through several phases of development. And the first phase of these is called Leninism. Now, and, and this is you know, and this is after Vladimir Lenin, who is the, the first leader of communist Russia after the 1917 uh, October Revolution. And it really is the, the philosophy, the economic and political philosophy of Lenin when Lenin realizes that he has to actually deal with the practicalities of organizing a new political system in a highly conservative, highly traditional Russia. And he adopted a notion that is already present in Marx, which is the dictatorship of the proletariat. And and the dictatorship of the proletariat is a transitional stage to genuine communism. It's sort of halfway between the stage of capitalism and communism. And to my mind, Brandon, Fitzpatrick Boyd, the president of the pro-tem government, seems a lot like Lenin in that he genuinely cares about the proletariat or who are the called working class. The, the working class or the poor, as they're called in Operation Aries, but doesn't realize that his meddling is actually doing more harm than good. And it's also creating a class of bureaucratic 
people who benefit off of the misery of others who have no reason to give up on their misery, even when prisoners are benefiting off of the poor in these neighborhoods, when prisoners are a better class of people in terms of what they receive, the the fruits of the economy, that's a huge problem than, than people who are citizens who are ostensibly contributing to the functioning of society. There's, there's a real problem in operationaries of the citizenship that doesn't quite make sense to me. Though they are oppressed, I don't know what kind of economic catastrophe would cause the kind of rural society that these people are living in and urban society. Like, Who's providing the drugs to these people? Who's getting rich off of that? What are the substructures of the economy at play here? What part does the government play in these substructures? All of that is kind of lost in this text. But all we have is a kind of a mask over the political system that's 100% about welfare and not about how drug addiction might... Well, we do get clearly that drug addiction is benefiting the government, but it's also benefiting the suppliers. And so there's a whole whole levels of production that are missing from this book that I find really fascinating in Wolf's attempt to address what a potentially communist United States might look like. I think it's fair to say that Wolf is imprinting the history of the Soviet Union onto this communist United States without allowing for all of the differences, not just in culture and previous institutions, but in time, which is, as, as you point out, is drugs and a market for drugs, for example, and other technological developments that really shape um, the American society of the 1960s. Of course, trying to implement communism in the 1960s in the United States is going to look dramatically different from trying to implement communism in Russia in the 1920s. But Wolf is trying to tell a fable here where he is. And I, I think that one of the things that Wolf is doing here is actually trying to show us how whatever Lenin's genuine good heartedness was. Lenin's policies necessarily bring about Stalin in much the way that I was surprised to discover that Fitzpatrick Boyd is a good man. He's a good person. He genuinely cares about people. The government apparatus that's built up around him or really beneath him without his ability to control it is not good. Right. It, it is cold. Right. We can see this in the form of the captain who becomes the general here in Chapter 10 as being the lowest level, really, of representative of this government, and he doesn't really care about the poor. He is, in fact, one of the most self-serving characters that we find in the book. He is living in a Stalinist society, even if Fitzpatrick Boyd still thinks that he is Lenin. And and what I mean by this is, is Joseph Stalin, or Stalinism, is a move out of is a move away really from any attempt to actually implement communism and is really just the Russian empire with new clothing. Right. And it just doesn't jibe that Fitzpatrick Boyd is so unaware and oblivious of the fallout of his policies that he's been ruling over. It's really unclear to me how somebody like the captain who would be promoted to a general, which is usually, at least on some level, a presidential appointment, would be promoted by a wholly separate 
militaristic arm of this government that the President Boyd has no control over or understanding of the promotions within to elite status within that society. You do get kind of the interesting conflict in you know, an ideological system where, you know, maybe the leader is focused on one thing and because they want its confirmation bias, Boyd is focused on helping the poor. And because all he wants to hear about or talk about as leader is the poor, he ignores everything else that's going on around him. And people can keep him insulated with information about how the poor are being improved and blah, blah, blah. This happens in totalitarian governments all the time. To some effect, it's happening in the American government today, at least if, you know, the news outlets are to be trusted about reports of the kinds of things our president wants to hear about the country, rather than the kinds of thing the president needs to know to in order to govern effectively. And so maybe something like that is going on with Fitzpatrick Boyd. But I'm less interested in Fitzpatrick Boyd as a character, as being the maybe the ultimate president here. What is going on with John Castle? Like, what is John Castle's story about? In this whole novel, as we go through it all, what is John Castle supposed to represent ideologically speaking in a novel about maybe dismantling some of these ideological arguments? Who's John Castle in all of this? He's not a savior figure. He, He falls in line, even though he maybe internally struggles against it. He doesn't really do it for love because that story's not driven enough. That's a classic way to sell ideological stories, by the way, is to um, wrap them in a love story and, and the soldier going home to his wife who things are better because he fought the war and all this stuff. This is a, like Russian films, American films. We get this a lot. Um, I just, I don't get what argument is being made in this novel at all, particularly as it's coming out of the mouth of John Castle. It seems as though the political rhetoric is coming from the mouth of mouths of other characters and john castle being a representative of those figures gives this speech about universal basic income perhaps but it's not coming from himself he had um uh, talked with emil lothrop and he talked with president huggins so i don't i don't get i get that that's the backdrop of the novel but i'm very lost as to the as to the what's in the forefront of this novel and that's the question that we're going to try to answer next week in our wrap-up episode. And, and and really going through Hegel and Marx and their philosophies of history here and talking about Marxism and then where we're going to go next is really to provide us and also listeners with this background information that I think is really necessary to to try to endeavor to understand what this book is about and what it is exactly that Wolf is that Wolf wants readers to take away. I also am perplexed, but I think that uh, our episode, our wrap up episode in two weeks, I think that we can really dig in on that. But before we get there, let's go through one more, one final political ideology that Wolf uh, mentions in chapter nine, and that is Fabianism. The Fabian Society was a British organization devoted to the gradual implantation of democratic socialism. You will have noticed the heavy emphasis of the word revolution in that passage from Engels that I read. Fabianism is explicitly anti-revolutionary. So the Fabian Society really wants the gradual implementation of democratic socialism. Yeah, from my understanding, which is very limited, they're trying to change the nature of the beast from 
within before they get digested, basically. Let's define democratic socialism before we get uh, too much further into talking about Fabianism. Democratic socialism is about the social ownership of production alongside political democracy, which is which differs from communism, in which workers count maybe councils of workers would be also controlling political decisions. So functionally, this is the legal and institutional protections of the people from the owners, and in many ways. We have we have been living in a in a democratic socialist society for really since FDR's presidency, since the Great Depression. That is unraveling around us has begun to unravel around us uh, in the 1990s, and really in the last in the last year, a lot of those protections have been undone. That's right, and and in fact, the term democratic socialism is rarely used in our political discourse, and when it was brought up in the in the last election as the kind of main position of Bernie Sanders, it frightened a lot of people because all they heard was socialism. Um, and they ignored the fact that, uh, you know, our whole infrastructure was built under a regime of democratic socialist policies and needs to continue that way in order to be maintained or even possibly flourish. Right. Fabianism was extraordinarily important in the early 20th century. In the UK, the Labour Party, which is now one of the major political parties, grew out of the Fabian Society. H.G. Uh, Wells was a short-term member of the Fabian Society. Of course, H.G. Wells, famous science fiction author of The Time Machine. Uh, and in fact, Brendan, you and I will be covering his famous short story, The Star, in our next Patreon episode. And democratic socialism spread throughout Europe, and as we've said, even into America, and much of our 20th century society was is predicated on it. And here in the 1960s, the mid-1960s, when Wolf is writing Operation Ares, democratic socialism is being debated again in the in the Great Society program of LBJ, of President uh, Lyndon Johnson. And I have to think that this debate is providing much of the backdrop of what is going on in Operation Ares. But I think that will be one of the topics for our discussion in our wrap-up episode. That's an excellent point. I think you're absolutely right, because this book operates as a sort of discourse between the federal government responsibilities to the individual and the individual's responsibilities to the federal government. That's one way of looking at this book. Maybe that's the only level I I can really understand it on is is you know, as we talked about in our discussion about the history of kind of political theory of utilitarianism and the other types of society that uh, that, that Socrates disc- disc- discusses in um, Credo. Th- this is a story, I mean, John is still formed by the society that he lives under, and he has not 100% given into the idea that he needs, it needs to be overthrown, just reformed. And so maybe that's a little bit of what's going on here as well. And that through time and policies, at the end, last two chapters of this book, John and Emil are trying to buy time so before somebody else takes over so they can make the necessary changes to the society. And I think that is at least a part of what Fabianism is about. 
That's a great reading of why Wolf is invoking Fabianism here. That's very interesting. Well, I think now that we are primed to have that larger discussion in our wrap-up episode, I think that's going to do it for us here today. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Well, now that we're done with the book, head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of Operation Ares. Yeah, these last two chapters were really plot heavy, which is why we didn't get too much into uh, kind of a discussion of these chapters in particular. But they really brought up the themes of the book, which is which is what that was about. So let us know, you know, if you saw these themes developed earlier on than we did. You know, we were reading this kind of a little blindly going into it without knowing where it was going to end up. So for those of you who have read it, let us know your thoughts, you know, what you thought of our discussion and coverage of it. Um, but I really want to hear what, what people who listened along with us think of this story as a fable, as we presented it to you, if you haven't read it. But you can also hang in there until next time when we really wrap up our conversation with with special guest and uh, prestigious wolf scholar, Mark Aramini. But until next time, we greet you and we say farewell. Farewell.